We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. We ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may, from time to time, ordain and establish. The judges, both of the Supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior and shall at stated times receive for their services a compensation, which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. Judicial power shall extend in all, to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made, or which shall be made under their authority. But uh, to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and the citizens of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state claiming laws under grants of different states, and between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign states, citizens or subjects. First two paragraphs, Article one, Article 3, Section 1 and Section 2 of the United States Constitution, dealing with the judiciary. It's Constitution Thursday, my friends, a time we set aside to look at what the Constitution says, what it means... How it, was, how it got to say what it says and how it affects our life even today. Text machine is open, 565-DAVE. A loqui cognizio, stand up, tell those who oppose liberty, don't tread on me. During the Great War, John, the War of the American Revolution, when we were shooting at redcoats and lobster backs. By the way, how did that game ever turn out? Did you ever win? You know what? I don't think I ever actually wound up finishing it. I'm really bad about finishing games. Well, there you go. Presumably, so we don't know how presumably yes, you win. Okay. Because there's no point in playing if you don't, right? During the, uh, during the American Revolution, there were, at any given time, depending on which state you were in, anywhere from 30 to 40% of the people of the United States at that point who actually were not in favor of the revolution, who did not agree with the idea of declaring our independence from Mother England. It's surprising to us today. I mean, we don't think in those terms. But when you look back at the actuality of that day, you realize that there were a significant number of what were called Tories in those days, or loyalists. In fact, most of the southern campaigns of the British Army were done with loyalist troops. They were not done with British troops per se. I mean, there were some, but the vast majority of their armies were loyalists, which... So we were kind of fighting our own people for part of it. In a lot of ways, the first civil war was the American Revolution. And if you study the Southern campaigns, you'll discover very quickly that that contributed. There's something particular when, when two nations fight each other, when you got British guy against American guy or German Hessian against American or, you know, whatever, it tends to be fairly straightforward. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard combat. But at the end of the day, everybody kind of goes back to their corner and says, okay, well, that's it. When it's brother on brother, it gets way more vicious than that. Because it's personal. It is personal. And that's, 
if you've studied American history in the Civil War, particularly the southern southern states that uh, had divided divisions like Tennessee, Arkansas, uh, Kentucky. Yeah, the damn Yankees, right? Right. The The way that they treated each other was just stunning. I mean, we're all used to the pictures at Gettysburg where the, where the Confederate troops were captured, and they're all joking at each other, and they're all just kind of standing around, and, and they get exchanged back. It didn't necessarily happen when you were talking family on family. It didn't work out quite that way. And in the same way, the uh, the American Revolution saw a lot of that, particularly in the South, uh, the Carolinas, Southern Virginia, uh, Georgia, those areas, where it was particularly bad. Virginia got a great idea during the Revolutionary War. Uh, you're not going to support our revolution? Guess what? We, zipto facto, blah, declare you persona non grata and revoke your whatever and revoke your whatever you are no longer uh, you are no longer part of us so nothing you own here is any more yours and therefore the state of virginia will take it and do with it as it pleases which in many cases was to sell it to other people to fund the war, the war effort, effort. Right. does this seem fair <sighs> I, don't, I don't know i mean i guess I guess it's fair, in, you know, in as much as they might have done the same thing, kind of had this had the roles been reversed. They you know what I mean? Have. They might have. Well, it's. Li- I would say it even goes so far as to say it's likely. And if they had lost, you hmm. know, who knows how it would have ended up? Right. Well, of course, um, when the war ended, seventeen eighty one, some interesting things happened. Many Tories, as they were actually returned to England. On the other hand, most of them stayed right where they were. In many cases, because by that point, pretty much everybody had kind of forgotten about the animosity. So, oh, well, we got a new country. Let's start it. In fact, uh, Francis Scott Key, I was reading that, that great book that I was talking about, Through the Perilous Night. Uh, Francis Scott Key's father is one of these guys. He ends up writing the Star Spangled He's Banner. one of the loyalists? He's one of the loyalists, who loses everything and stays. Wow. His son is not a His son's a, a rebel all the right. way through and through. I mean, he's born actually after the, all that stuff goes on, but he's pretty, uh, but he, end up, he ends up staying and eventually doesn't, has to start all over again because he lost everything. So they didn't give you your stuff back? They didn't like, because you remember we talked nope. a lot about how they kind of did that in the Civil War where it was sort of like, you know, everybody who fought for the South is is hereby pardoned. As and, long as you uh, take a oath of loyalty. Right, right. Yeah, no, we didn't we're, do that. We're brothers again. In right. fact, in this time around, this guy by the name of uh, Danny Fairfax was, um, well, the original suit was an action of ejection brought in a Virginia state court for the recovery of land in the state known as the Northern Neck Proprietary. Okay. A declaration of ejection was served in April of 1791 on the tenants in possession of the land. A guy by the name of Danny Fairfax was a British subject who held the land under the device of Lord Thomas Fairfax. Uh, he was admitted to defend the suit and plead uh, the general issue upon usual terms. The whole point was he, he was now declaring that under the Constitution of the United States, which had just recently been passed, you took my land without, without uh, compensating me for it. Right. Even though you did it. During the Revolutionary War, which was pre-Constitution. Right. Put on your judicial robes now and uh, consider for just a moment the position of one Denny, Denny Martin. Denny Martin, who uh, 
is the descendant now of the loyalists that owned the land. That guy's name was uh, was uh, was Denny Martin. He wants his ancestral lands back, seized by the state of Virginia during the war. Up until the Constitution is ratified, which concludes, after that point, the Fifth Amendment, which says no taking, what happens now? Well, wouldn't it be an ex post facto case? Because at the time, it wasn't illegal, and at the time, there was no Fifth Amendment. Here's a bigger question, John. Is it a federal law that took his land or a state law that took his land? Oh, if it's the state of Virginia taking it, yeah. So what should we do as the court has established? That's the question that's got to be argued. Now, this case does not quite go where you would expect it to go. The Virginia State Supreme Court obviously upholds the, the, uh, the no, you can't have your land back. Sorry. <laughs> nope. He appeals that to this United States Supreme Court. <clears throat> and we're going to see some interesting events here before the whole thing is said and done. Why do we establish these courts? What was the thought thought processes behind this? Where did we end up with all this? How did we get here? Is a convoluted twist in the same way of compromise and everything else that the Constitution has gone through to this point. Consider for a moment that these, again, were Englishmen. They were used to the English justice system under which the king was absolute. Parliament had also made itself absolute, subject to the king. In other words, You could not overturn an act of parliament except by parliament. When it came to criminal justice, there was an intriguing system, of course. They'd long since passed the Star Chamber, but they did have the royal governors. The royal governors each had a privy council, which was modeled after the king's privy council. There was also the last-ditch court of appeal, which was known as the House of Lords, which could actually hear a criminal complaint and decide whether or not the person was guilty or not, if it was appealed that high. They didn't want to do that because they didn't like the idea of the Senate spending all of its time, uh, you know, seeing this stuff. They didn't like the idea of the Privy Council. They didn't like the idea of, uh, of a lot of things. And so they looked at these, the judges. Now, you have to understand that in colonial America, judges were not necessarily seen, John, as... I don't know. We have this image of judges today, where if you meet a judge, there's kind of a uh, it's kind of a Tom Sawyer esque, you know, Becky Flet Becky Fletcher um, awe that we kind of hold them in. Yeah, kind of a reverence. Yeah, because they've been doing it for a long time. These it, are the guys that know the law. It wasn't that way. No? in the colonial time, it was just another job you could have. It was just a it was just a necessity because of the way the courts worked with all the the royal influence and all that. They were almost seen as, in some ways, like tax collectors. They're, you're just enforcing the federal, you're just enforcing the, the king's law. In point of fact, few prominent colonial judges actually joined the revolution. Most of them remained loyal to the crown for obvious reasons. Right. I mean, because it was good for them. Bread was buttered by the king, so they might as well stay there. Right. The, um, the, the officers generally retained Those the right. Butter loving loyalists. Right. Ten of the 13 <laughs> colonists. I'm sorry, in turn, 10 of the 13 colonists, sitting Chief Justice or his equivalent ultimately chose King, uh, King George III over George Washington. Connecticut and Rhode Island were the only colonies who named their own judges, were the exception to this pattern. So in every colony where the king appointed the judges, they stayed loyal. They, this caused some, the framers some, some concern. They didn't want the justices to, they wanted them, their, their allegiance to be to the nation and the Constitution, not 
potentially to someone else putting them in there. That's why they put that prohibition in there against uh, removing them just for, you know, any particular cause. In good, as long as they are in good behavior, you can't necessarily impeach them. And you can't mess with their pay. I mean, you can give them pay or increase, but you cannot cut their pay while they're judges. So once they're in, they're, you can't do those things. Keeping Congress from interfering from a political standpoint. Right. Yeah, from influencing them. Oh, you didn't rule the way we liked, we would have liked you to rule. Now you make $100 less. Right. They didn't want that kind of thing happening. So they had the, all of these things adding up together. And they looked at what they were trying to do. And they recognized the fact that they needed a judicial system. But they wanted this judicial system to do more than just criminal type stuff. They wanted it to do more than just watching over crimes. The idea, however, of what would become eventually known as judicial review simply did not occur to them. The evidence for that is in the way they set this up. They they clearly set up what was going on as a process for criminal-type justice, civil-type justice, but not judicial review-type justice. Now, what's that mean? We'll get into in just a second. When it comes to judicial review, that is one of those phrases that is often thrown about by conservative talk show hosts, particularly, oh, we don't want... You can, you can oversimplify judicial review by calling it legislating from the bench. It's not really what it is, but you can oversimplify it to that. And, you know, oversimplification is the key to demonization. You oversimplify something and repeat it often enough, people will start saying, well, it's on the Internet. It must be true. Right. And that's how you end up in that particular point. I'm way over time. It's Afternoons Live, Constitution Thursday. You want to join us? 565 Dave is the text machine. Stay with us back right after this. Afternoons live, KFIB, 1360 AM, Modesto, KWSX, 1280 AM, Stockton. It's me, Dave. It's John. It's Constitution Thursday, looking at Article 3 of the United States Constitution. When we left you off, the Supreme Court was considering a case in Virginia of a gentleman who was the descendant of a Tory during the Revolutionary War. That is land seized by Virginia, a state. And now, with the passage of the new Fifth Amendment was insisting that his lands had been taken without compensation. And we had talked about the background of the courts and sort of why we needed to get to where we are. And we kind of led to this phrase called judicial review, which is... It's a phrase that causes conservatives, for the most part, to to go into hives and, and start screaming and yelling and that sort of thing. It, it, primarily because they don't really grasp the breadth of what's going on. It's not to say that judicial review is always a good thing. In fact, uh, when I have judicial candidates in here, one of the things I ask them is about what their position is on judicial review. Do they believe that the purpose of the court is to review all laws for constitutionality? Or is it somewhat more limited? 
the framers had an interesting take on this idea. They didn't like the idea. The idea of judicial review really didn't occur to them per se. It's, it's not delineated in the Constitution. It doesn't say that the purpose of the justices is to review laws to make sure they're constitutional. Now, you'll be taught that in school. You'll go to school. They'll tell you there are three co-equal branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial. The purpose of the legislative is to pass laws. The executive executes laws, and the judicial reviews the laws to make sure that they're constitutional. That is not what was set up in the Constitution. Now, it is what has come to pass through the concept of judicial review. It is not as ancient as people believe it is to be either. That's the other, the other element. Most, uh, most arguments that you will have about the concept of judicial review will point to one case in the early 1800s, the famed Marbury versus Madison case, where John Marshall, the great Supreme Justice, wrote, hey, the law means what we say it means. And this, he established the doctrine of judicial review but did not actually perform the act of judicial review. Does that make sense to everybody? He said, we can do this if we want, but we're not going to. But then people wound up doing it anyway. But not right away. It didn't really take, or the idea of judicial review really did not take root until the mid-60s in the United States. In fact, it wasn't until the mid-60s that the, the Supreme Court actually wrote in a decision, we were reviewing this law for constitutionality. They didn't really look at it in those terms. And, and it really, if you think about what was going on in the 60s with the civil rights issue, yeah, read a fascinating article this week, and I don't want to bore everybody to death with this, but an absolutely fascinating article, the difference between legal thought in 1960 about what was constitutional under the 14th Amendment and 1965 and the thoughts about what was constitutional under the 14th Amendment. And this idea of judicial review and this idea of, wait a sec, we're looking at all of these civil rights issues that are going on in the country. And, you know, look, it, it was a different country in those days. I mean, we had Jim Crow laws that were state laws. We had, um, I watched 42 again last night. What a wonderful movie. And the scene where, where Rachel Robinson is standing there in the, in the airport in Baton Rouge, staring at the, at the, the whites-only bathroom. I'd never seen one before, she says. Having come from Pasadena, she'd never right. seen one before. This is, this is an, how can, how can it be equal protection under the law if in California you don't have these laws, but in Mississippi you do? That's not equal protection. Even though it's a state law, there's, there's a thought process here that, de- that really developed between 1960 and 1965 of, well, wait a minute. Maybe it is the court's role to look at this stuff and go, well, that's, that state law is not constitutional and therefore struck down under the 14th Amendment. That's really where they took Marshall's concept of, hey, we have the right to look at any law, and began to put it into play. It wasn't the easiest thing to do, obviously. They still had some struggles along the way with particularly uh, civil rights issues. But, and then some would argue that post that, John, they went way overboard. The, the Boston ruling in the early 70s about, well, there aren't enough racial minorities in this school, so therefore we're going to make people get on a bus and drive across town so that we even all these out. Seemed to be the that, that seemed to be judicial review run amok at that point. Now the judicial justice isn't just deciding if the law is unconstitutional. What law says who goes to what school? I mean, you have a rule in the school district, but it's not a law per se. 
now you got a justice saying, well, that's not good enough. I'm going to legislate from the bench and tell you how you have to behave. And that's where I think not just conservatives, I think that's where everybody should fall down and go, wait a sec. Right. Now, how, how is it that this guy gets to decide the thing? I grew up in busing. I was bused for two years. And I've, I've told you this before. For me personally, it was actually a pretty good experience. I enjoyed going to Eagleton Elementary School in downtown Denver, which was a very poor school. In fact, it was built in like 1880. It was an ancient building that they were building a brand new school next to it. Now, when you say bust, are we, are, are we, we got, we went to school. Are we drive, like drawing a distinction between that and just taking the bus to school? No, no. We would go to our school, Dow Elementary, uh-huh. get to school, get on a bus, drive to Eagleton School, and get off the bus and go to school there. Oh. And then when we were done, and we'd only go half a day. I mean, it didn't make us go. And then so at the end of the, at the end of the lunch period, we'd get back on the bus, go back to our school, Dow Elementary, and finish the day. And then we would go home. Weird. Okay. This was happening all around the country, and this is this is part of the problem with judicial review. The idea of looking at a law to say, okay, you can't have a whites only bathroom and a whites only uh, and, a, and a coloreds only drinking fountain sure. is one thing, and yet the principle kind of remains the same, doesn't it? The judicial, the idea of the judges being able to look at something and say, well, it's unconstitutional. How that judge got to the idea that, well, because one school isn't this color enough. Everybody in the country should have to get on a bus and go somewhere else is uh, is 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 really the the fear that judicial review invokes. Right. And that's really what the framers did not want to have happen. That's why they didn't really come up with that concept. And while Justice Marshall said they could, he didn't. And so everybody was kind of like, well, you know, it's legalese. Who really understands what he's saying anyway? Right. And so everybody kind of went. Add in the 14th Amendment with its due process, equal protection clauses. And as people began to see how that was going to affect things, and again, I point out to you that we look at the 14th Amendment today and we go, well, that's, it's strange. Uh, it's, it's got some weird stuff in it, but it's all for the good. Remember that in the 1880s, when, or the 1860s, when this, when the 14th Amendment was up for voting, many states opposed it vehemently because they saw what was going to happen. They saw the supremacy of federal taking, justices taking over that California, the most well, like arguably the most liberal state in the entire country today, did not ratify the 14th Amendment until 1960. That should tell you something right there. The justices began to look at these things. They began to look at these cases. They began to apply these ideas. The framers knew what they wanted. They said very clearly in, in the Federalist Papers as they were talking about these things, uh, one, of the, one of the most interesting things that they said, even though they didn't like the idea of uh, judicial review, they explained... The judges could and should refuse to enforce federal laws that were, in the words of Federalist 78, contrary to the manifest tenor of the Constitution. So if the Constitution, if we passed a law that said, I don't know, let's say um, criticizing the government in 1798 is against the law, it's the Alien and Sedition Act, I'd say that's against the manifest tenor of the Constitution. Right. Judges... We're expected under the framers' ideas by that, to just, say you just mean that's the it's against the basic kind of liberty pr- principles of the, of the Constitution. Right. If you, you read the rest of it, you can figure out they probably wouldn't have been into that. The judges were expected under the ideas of the framers to to not enforce those laws, and yet right. as we've learned along the way, <laughs> didn't quite work out that way, did it? The justices had been the courts had been packed by the Federalists, and they enforced that law. Stranger things have happened. And yet we still got this guy sitting in Virginia going, well, that's my land, ancestrally.
So we're almost kind of talking about like the first uh, question of, of, of incorporation, aren't we? In some ways. Now, they will not end up incorporating the Fifth Amendment into this case. Right. However, they are going to decide it. Which side do you think they're going to come down on? Keeping in mind that it's uh, it's still the early 1790s. I don't know. I almost think at that point, the ex post facto thing would be more important to them. And also, this was a war freshly won, uh, where where you know the kind of I don't know, man. It's I, I think I think oh, this is tough. Chief Justice John Marshall <laughs> um, did not judge a did, did, sat out on this one. He he cited a financial conflict of interest. His brother had actually signed a contract with the man to buy the land in question. And so he ends up sitting it out. Because um, it was a much smaller country back then. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> they actually decide that they do have the ability to decide this case. They come out and say, well, it may be a state law, but the Constitution, part of the process of the ratification of the Constitution is the United States government. See, because the, Virginia used the sales of the land to pay for Revolutionary War debt. Well, who now holds that debt? The United States, United government, States does. government does. And this is the first instance ah. of the court saying federal law trumps state law. Without actually incorporating it, they actually say, ah, we get to decide this case. We get to. Because we're the holders of the debt. There you go. Interesting. It's not quite judicial review, but you can see how we're headed in that direction. It's half past the hour, 565 Dave, 565 3283. Back after. Sometimes, John, when you're talking about the judiciary, to not overcomplicate things. The judiciary was seen, and welcome back, it's Constitution Thursday on Afternoon Slide. The judiciary was seen by the framers, not in the sense of judicial review, but in the sense of a bulwark against overreach by particularly the, the legislative branch. It was an opportunity to give the people who had no say in who the judges were, direct say anyway. We didn't pick the judges. Still don't. But we had an indirect say in the sense that we chose the president, sort of, and we chose the people who decided who our senators were one way or the other. And so it was seen that they were isolated, and yet even in that isolation, they were loyal to the Constitution more so than anything else. The question about what manifested, what what would be a manifest tenor of the Constitution differentiating from that was 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 really difficult to to define even in those days. I mean, how likely would it be that Congress would pass a law saying, "Well, criticizing the government is now a is now a crime"? How likely would that be? They thought as they wrote that, not realizing that uh, why would anyone ever do that? Right. That's uh, why would they ever do it again after doing after they did it the first time? The idea that judges judges would be packed on courts didn't really occur to them. It, it, it They had a high hope for this. But at the same time, they so limited the judiciary because they recognized its power that it 
could have assumed for itself with the idea of judicial review. They intentionally limited it. Consider for just a moment. Congress is chosen and answerable to the people. Congress passes the laws, which the judiciary then is supposed to judge whether or not have been violated. The president, the executive is supposed to execute those laws. The, the executive is chosen by the people who are chosen at that point by the people. Right. There is, but it is the executive and the Congress who appoint the judges. The judges have no, into, if someone misbehaves in the House, the House has a rule that says we can kick them out. We can censure you and kick you out. We can do the same thing in the Senate. We can, we can, we can evict the president if we don't like him. If the president doesn't like a law that Congress passes for whatever reason, he just vetoes it. But there's no corresponding relationship to that in the judicial system. Yeah, Justices, you can't go to them and be like, no, you ruled on that wrong and we're not going to do it. Justices can't kick themselves out. It has to be done by impeachment. Right. They don't really decide their rules. Congress decides where they sit, where they, what laws that they consider. And it was intended then that they were, the, in fact, the weakest branch of the three. It's only in the last 50 to 60 years with the concept of judicial review that the thought processes as to what the judicial is supposed to be has resulted in a situation where we actually have schools that teach three equal but separate branches. You know, balance of power. What's the uh, checks? Balance and che- checks and balances against each other. While that was, in fact, intended... It wasn't necessarily intended the way that we're taught to. In point of uh, along the way, there were things like the non-delegation discussion. We we talked at great length in the very first, the case of the Brig Aurora. We talked about the fact that Congress delegated authority to the president. And the court had to decide right off the top of the bat, can Congress delegate authority to the president? Non-delegation doctrines notwithstanding, they decided, sure he could under those cer- under certain circumstances. The court was pressed in so many ways and shaped by what was going on around it. And yet, I guess the scariest thing that happened to the court along the way of our history is that it did become political. It did become, uh, and I know I've spoken before about the advantages of the three-fifths clause. One of the biggest disadvantages, however, of the three-fifths clause is that it gave the South the majority of the first nine-seat court gave them five of the nine seats, which meant that the laws tended to favor Southern causes, even though the framers were clearly anti-slavery, clearly wanted slavery demolished. With five justices on the Supreme Court, how do you think those anti-slavery laws went? Right down to the Dred Scott case, where justices ruled that a free African-American, a free former slave, had no rights in the United States may be the worst Supreme Court justice ruling ever in the history of our courts. But that's at the point that they had reached by those things along there. Judicial review begins to keep into all this thing, and eventually we end up in a situation where the court, more generally than not, is asked not to judge whether the law has been violated or not, but whether or not a law is constitutional or not. And that's kind of where we are today. Quarter till 565 Dave is the text machine. Stay with us. Back to wrap all this up after this.
so back to where we started all this, John, in Virginia, with the idea that land had been taken from a loyalist to the crown and then years later wanted back. The court did, in fact, decide for Lord Fairfax's position that it was his land. Their logic, so they gave it back to him or their, they bought it from him? Or exactly. Their, their logic was pretty, uh, pretty defensible. Justice Story wrote the decision in which he ruled that the courts in Virginia, while not necessarily, while, while this law hasn't been incorporated, and that was a theory that had not occurred to them yet, the courts were bound to follow the United States Constitution. Because otherwise, if the, if the state courts were allowed to just ignore the United States Constitution, you'd end up with a whole bunch of different variations of how the Constitution was being interpreted. Yeah. As if there were states. And you're not even really a federal government, like a, a unified government at that point. You know what I mean? And so they made it very clear that in the first, uh, this one. can have with, a Sharia state or something. You know? Good. <laughs> along with Marbury versus Madison really established the judicial power to rule in those cases. Now, this was before incorporation, before the idea of forcing I don't like that phrase, but Im- Im- imposing, if you will, the Bill of Rights onto the state constitutions, as it's been done slowly and surely. Mm. It, uh, it has led to a situation where, of course, many people question the validity of court rulings today. I mean, put aside your particular position on the issue of Prop 8. That's not, forget what the actual issue is and consider the actual technicalities of the case. The fact that a federal judge ruled that a state could not violate the 14th Amendment. Now, there are any, I don't want to really, I don't want to open that can of debate because there are other arguments that could have been made. Well, let's say, but if we passed a law, if (laughs) we passed a law in California saying you can't not have a gun, you would expect the federal judge to just as vehemently rule that no, the Constitution says they have a right to have guns. Within reason, you can limit some of that stuff, but We'll have a discussion as to what limits mean, but you cannot just ban them outright. And we would expect that to be because, again, the Second Amendment has been incorporated under the 14th Amendment's due protection, equal protection and due process. It has also led to some interesting positions on the court. There was, some years ago, a case, uh, Marsh versus Chambers. And, John, this has some applicability to us here. It was a case in which the Supreme Court decided that government funding for chaplains was un- was constitutional, was constitutional, because of the unique history of the United States. Uh, three days before the ratification of the First Amendment, the federal legislature authorized hiring a chapel, chaplain sorry, for the first sessions in prayer. Nebraska State Senator Ernie Chambers, in the uh, mid, I think this was the 1980s, if I remember, 70s, sued in federal court com- claiming that the legislative practice of opening sessions with a prayer offered by state-sported chaplain was in violation of the Establishment Clause. District court held that the prayer did not violate the Constitution, but that state support for the chaplain did. Eighth Circuit Court held that both practices were in violation. Justice Brennan, along with Justice Marshall in the Supreme Court, wrote a dissenting opinion. The court makes no pretense of subjecting Nebraska's practice of legislative prayer to any formal tests that have been traditionally structured under our establishment cause, that it fails to do so is, in a sense, a good thing. For it simply confirms that the court is carving out an exception to the exception clause, rather than reshaping the establishment clause doctrine, blah, 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 blah. This is the problem with some of these cases. Anytime you yeah. start reading it kind of drains on. <laughs> I had to do go. math there. <laughs> this has all led to, as we've talked about on numerous occasions, I know we've talked about at least once since you've been here, 
in the five years I've been sitting here, we've talked about this at least four times. In fact, we've had guests on about this, about whether or not prayers before city council meetings are legit. One of the cases that I guarantee you by next June, by the end of next June, guess what? We're going to know one way or the other because the Supreme Court is, in fact, taking up that case. Really? To decide whether or not government prayers are before offered before those are legit or not. That is a sticky widget. It's a sticky widget in a lot of ways, but it, it, it points to what we've expected our court to become over the over the ensuing 237 years. Originally, it was designed to oversee trials, civil and criminal, and to make sure that the people's rights were protected. Now it has literally become the, as was written in the 60s and 70s, the interpreter of the Constitution. That was not what was written. That's not in the Constitution. That's not what the framers understood. They did not see the court as being the interpreter of the Constitution. They expected the legislative body, Congress, to be able to say, oh, well, we're going to pass a law. We should probably check the Constitution and see if it's legit or not first. They expected we, the people, to stand up and say, wait a sec, you can't pass a law that says we can't criticize you. We have the right to freedom of speech. They expected the president to veto such laws. And they expected the courts to not enforce such laws, particularly, hopefully, through juries. One of the things, I heard a, just an absolutely stunning thing today about the Trayvon Martin jury, and I hate to go back there, about the fact that the jury closely followed the law, blah, 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 blah. Uh, that's true. But what if the jury had decided that that self-defense law was flawed? That they didn't like that self-defense law? And you went through jury nullification on the basis of convicting George Zimmerman. These are all opportunities that are there. But we've actually reached a point in this country where we'd rather trust those nine guys to decide, or as the case is today, one guy to decide, than to think for ourselves. It's never what was intended, never what was supposed to be. But it's kind of the point we've reached. So we either need to learn to get a hold of it, or we need to start electing people that will put it back the way it was, one way or the other. The judiciary of the United States under the Constitution, as seen in 1787 and through 1816 anyway. It's Afternoons Live, KFIV, KWSX. Stay with us. We'll be back in 60 short seconds. That puts the wraps on a Constitution Thursday. John, coming up tomorrow, we got fun with news again. Hooray! And top five worst ways I've ever been woken up. Get your list together and text it on in, 565-DAVE, or email at DaveDiamondShow at ClearChannel.com. Don't forget, until 7 o'clock tonight, you can donate blood out at 136 Mariposa Road. I believe that's the Cisco Foods facility. You can get out there to the Delta Blood Bank blood bus. Just tell them you're, uh, you're donating on behalf of Brian Keyes. And uh, if you can't make it out there tonight, Oakdale Community, uh, 1425 West 8th Street from 10 to 2 on Saturday. They'll be doing that. Uh, Brian needed 16 units for his surgeries. And that uh, you're, you're, you're helping him out and you're helping out your community by donating blood. So get on by there and do that. Other things, tonight at 8 o'clock, John, the incredible hayseeds take the field again. So if you want to come Fantastic. out to uh, Big League Dreams in Manteca and watch me flail about a uh, softball field along with Mazzy, love to see you out there as well. And we'll be back tomorrow for a uh, Friday, fun Friday episode of the show.
Take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life you love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there. So don't pass up those opportunities. You don't want to have that regret. I'm Dave. That's John. Have a wonderful evening, everybody. We will see you tomorrow for Friday episode of Afternoons Live with Dave and John right here on KFIB 1360 AM Modesto, KWSX 1280 AM Stockton. Of course, everywhere via the iHeartRadio app on your smartphone, your tablet, computer, or any other kind of mobile device that we make that thing for. Stay tuned. Rusty Humphreys is next over here on KFIB. A little bit later, you got Stockton Force Baseball on KWSX. Have a great night, everybody. See you tomorrow. Afternoons Live is a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for Clear Channel Media and Entertainment Modesto.